I'm Alina Liddell. And I'm Kyle Ketchadorian. And you're listening to another episode of The Accessible Stall. What are we going to talk about today, Emily? Well, actually, for once, I'm handing it back over to you because this time you get to introduce our guest. I feel like that's fun. Usually I'm like, who do we have special guests? But it's your turn. Yes, today we have a guest on our show and we could not be more excited about it. Would you please introduce yourself? Special guest. Hi, my name is Alex Parker, uh, and I'm a fourth grade teacher at Constant Avenue Elementary School in LaGrange, Illinois. Oh my gosh. Okay. So uh, we were so excited when you agreed to be on the show with us because we both immediately gravitated towards what you have to say. And I feel like we should probably back up for two seconds and explain how we got here. So... Kyle and I got connected with a really cool organization called the Nora Project. And Alex, I'm going to have you actually tell us a little bit more about the Nora Project in a second, if that's okay. But we gave a keynote keynote conversation. Is that a thing? A keynote conversation? It is now. It's usually, it's usually like a talk. But we gave a keynote talk uh, for the Nora Project. And... Alex happened to be on that particular call and said some things that really resonated with us. And we were like, why don't we just get him to come on the podcast? Because he seems really cool. So honestly, this was just our way of talking with a cool person. I can always appreciate that. I can always appreciate (laughs) that. So we'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about the Nora Project, and then we can dive into what you do specifically. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the Nora Project's goal is really to promote disability inclusion by empowering educators and engaging students and communities. So the Nora Project has uh, a series of of curricula that that really look to bring disability into the conversation. Um, So there's a a series of of lessons and and activities that teachers get to do with their class for an entire year, which I think is really the thing that drew me to the organization is that it's a year-long curriculum. Um, and it, it really allows for teachers and students to have meaningful conversations about what disability is, and it, it provides a disability education for students, and, and I think there's, there's a real focus on just kind of the identity aspect of, of who we are um, and how disability fits into kind of the idea of identity as a whole. Um, so it's an amazing organization that, that got brought to my school a few years ago, and I've just gotten very involved in it. That is so cool. I remember, uh, actually, when I first heard about the Nora Project, Emily, it's when it's when we got approached uh, and I, I met uh, Lauren through you and I never heard of them before. And, and I just love what they do. I remember like the week before our keynote, I was like talking to my girlfriend about how excited I was to be giving it because it's such a necessary and needed thing. Um, yeah, it's so cool. So Tell us a little bit a little bit about how you sort of landed in your field. How did you get here? Why is it you telling us about the Nora Project? <laughs> it's like, how did I end up here in a conversation with both of you? Okay. <laughs> right. In yes. this particular very moment, why are you here? In this very moment. Yeah. It's 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 really interesting I tell people about like how all of these things kind of they came to be because I I went into college um, and I wanted to be a dentist. And that was my goal from like age 10. I was like, I want to be a dentist. Like this, this seems awesome. Like everyone else wants to be like a medical doctor. So I want to be a doctor, but not like everyone else. So I was like, I'm going to be a dentist. And I took a chemistry class and I was like, okay, there's, there's no way I'm going to be doing science for the rest of my <laughs> life. Like this ain't the life for me. Um, and then I quickly pivoted to law school. I was like, I, I know how to read and write well. Like I'm going to play into my strengths. And uh, the person that I was dating at the time in college um, was a special education major. And she, I was the first summer kind of after a freshman year, I didn't have a job. And she was like, well, I like work with this really amazing organization that provides activities for both children and adults who are disabled. Like they need volunteers to be willing to do it. And I was like the 18 year old in his first serious relationship with all the alacrity in the world. And I was like, yeah, I'll totally volunteer. Like, yes, I'll do it. And I had no idea what I was getting myself into. But I was just like, yes, if you want me to do it, I'll do it. And it, it honestly, it's one of those things when I look back at kind of where my life is and I'm like, that's actually the thing that changed my life. 
was actually just my willingness to volunteer because I started working with the Illinois Special Olympics Young Athletes Program, so it's kids ages two to seven who have you know various disabilities who are just kind of trying to gain those those motor skills to be able to participate in sports. And I played soccer my entire life and through college. And so I was like, wait, this is something I'm good at. And I realized I was like, wait, I'm actually having fun doing this. Like every time I come to volunteer, um, and I kind of hit the point where I was like, I think I need to be a teacher. Like I think this is what I need to do. Like. And that relationship ended, of course, at some point in college. Um, but the, the notion stuck with me um, that I wanted to go into education. And I actually went into general education. I didn't go into special ed um, because I started working at a day camp the following summer. And I was like, I think this is kind of my niche, like, you know, elementary grades. Like, I feel like I'm really talented at this. Um, and I've been teaching for, you know, four years. And, and uh, a few folks in my school brought the NORA project to me that a parent had brought it to my administration. A parent had met, a parent in my school at the time had met. Lauren from the Nora Project, who's the executive director of, of TMP. Um, and this parent was like, we got to bring this to our school. And so the parent brought it and my principal is he's amazing. And he's like, oh yes, this, this sounds great. Let's do it. And he ended up tapping on our, our instructional coach and our special ed teacher who kind of approached me about it. And they had no idea, they had no idea that I had a disability background and I'd volunteered with the Special Olympics Young Athletes Program for about five or six years. And so when they brought it to me, I was like, wait, this is like what got me into education in the first place. I'm so passionate about this. Like, I love that I get to bring this to my like general ed classroom. And from there, it just kind of really took off. So that's how I got here. <laughs> Neither of us were expecting such a cool answer, not because you're not a cool person, but just because everyone's like, oh, I just wanted to help the poor disabled children, you know? <laughs> <laughs> of course that was yeah. a way cooler answer I, i'm glad yeah that's i feel like i i learned uh now that i've helped to interview people in, in my school that like the answer that like i'm like you should never give is i want to work with kids is like the answer that i feel like that's like the generic like box answer is the i just want to work with kids so i'm, I'm glad that my answer is like not that <laughs> no it's way more fun and also i feel like what I love about that is that it was very organic as opposed to sort of a, a forced, like, I'm going to fix everything for the disability community. So I'm, I'm very into the vibe here. I'm really feeling <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> so I wanted to narrow our focus a little bit to talk specifically about the work that you do with the Nora project and also for your teaching. Um, uh, a birdie called the internet told us that you have been a presenter on your research, you know, on inclusive schools and disability education around the world. So true or false? <laughs> this is true. Uh, if if it's on Google, it's obviously true. So <laughs> you yeah, should believe exactly. everything you read on Google exactly. and it's true. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, great. We passed the first test. Um, second one Google also told us that you were a Yale University Teacher Action Research Prize winner for your work, which is no big deal or anything. That's also true, so, Google's right. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, Google, Google, coming through. But really, <laughs> but really what we wanted to get to is that earlier this year, you wrote an article for Edutopia is that how you, do you say edutopia or edutopia? That's a very important question. I was hoping you'd say it first because I'm like, I, I say edutopia, but I'm like, I feel like people probably say it differently. But I, like, I, I'm just like, I don't know, fanatic says it should be edutopia. So that's what I always say. <laughs> so we'll link it in the show notes. But it's a really good article and it talks about why disability should have a place in the work that we do in schools around anti-bias. So obviously we agree we're all for it. But can you talk a little bit more about why that's so important and just about your research in general? Yeah, I think I think I'll go with the research part first, just because I kind of like, I feel like that's on the path to getting me to kind of where I am now with the Edutopia uh, publication that came out this summer. And yeah, take us on the journey. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, yeah, I would say with the research, I mean, it, it, it just kind of came to me that my first year working with uh, TNP, um, the assistant principal at my school at the time, who's now a principal at another school in, in our district, um, just kind of passed along the, the Yale uh, Teacher Action Research uh, Prize. And 
just kind of the the parameters for that. And I was like, wait, this actually, this seems really interesting. And this kind of fits a lot in line with kind of what I'm looking to get out of, out of my students anyway. And it was just a lot of looking at my students and seeing is, is the NORA project, um, is the curriculum actually really making an impact. And, and the NORA project and TNP is amazing about, they, they have amazing, uh, you know, data people and, and they have great research that shows, um, kind of the impact that it has. But I think like any person who enjoys data, I kind of just wanted to see where that fit into the space that I had. And so I just essentially, I reached out to TNP and was like, I'm really interested in just kind of, you know, seeing how the questions that you have for the surveys that we give the kids, how that fits into my class. Can I utilize that? And then, you know, look into some, you know, boring old research (laughs) and see if this is supported by research that's been done by other scholars and see like kind of the path that we're on. Is this in line with what we read in literature? And they were totally on board, you know, Lauren and, and Katie and other amazing people, team people were like, yes, do it, do it. Great. Um, and I honestly didn't think anything would come of it. I just thought it would be like a cool opportunity to, um, it was, it was before I, you know, I'm starting grad school again now in, in August and I've, I've always loved doing research and it was honestly an opportunity for me to keep myself busy. <laughs> and I was like, I like, I, I love research and I want to see how effective this is for my students in the first year. And I was just like, let me just put something together. Um, and so I, you know, spent a couple months just, you know, writing a research paper. And, and I think the amazing thing when I submitted it um, to Yale was how the data showed how amazing the, the exchange was in my students um, in their beliefs and sentiments and impressions on other children who had disabilities. That was really the focus of it was baseline, how do my students view you know, kids who other, their peers who have disabilities, um, do they view them um, as someone who they would want to play with, as someone they have something in common with, um, and, you know, someone they would approach, or is it kind of a, oh, that's maybe a little too different for me? And the baseline data showed that most of them were a little hesitant to spend time with a disabled child. Um, And as I kind of did surveys, you know, throughout, and as I got to my end survey, which would have been about... March or April of that first year, it was a complete turnaround where it was, you know, 90 plus percent of students said, yes, I want to spend time with a child who's disabled. Yes, he would be my friend. Yes, I will hang out with them. Um, and I, I think to me, that was, that was really the, the amazing thing was to see, wow, this program really works. Like this, this really is a year long program. And that was what kind of sold it in the literature too, is that everything I found that was like a, I'm going to use quotes here, like a school-based intervention is what it's called in the literature, was, you know, maybe one presentation, maybe two, maybe six weeks. Um, but the few that were longer term, that were maybe one or two months, had the biggest impact statistically on kids. But the fact that the NORA project was a year long was really the thing that I kind of sold as to why I think it's such, how it made such an amazing impact was I'm like, this is something I couldn't find in the literature in other places. I'm sure it exists. <laughs> I am no, I'm, I'm, I don't have a PhD yet. Um, so it's, it was one of those things of, I think that's what, that's what really made it amazing. And it made me realize that there's something here, but there's, there's work for, for other teachers to do because if, if we, you know, most schools aren't doing the NORA project, um, you know, how can we include, you know, where does disability fit into this? Um, and that was kind of my initial thought process, but then it really kind of came to light um, post, you know, May 25th, 2020, post George Floyd, when lots of people started to really no longer hit the snooze button on what was going on uh, in, in America and in the world. And I think that was a point when organizations and schools became more interested in like, you know, maybe some people in our school and our org are, are doing this work, but this is something that we want to put on the forefront. And this is something we want to do. And, and my school district has been amazing in the past few years of doing a lot of equity work um, and really looking at this. And so I think that it, it really kind of became the, the nice the nice meeting point of the work I had done um, with my research and then kind of where it seemed that education was trending. Um, it seemed to be a great meeting pl- place. And, and I reached out to the NORA project um, and I was like, if there's anything I can do, um, you know, to, to kind of help this along because I, I also work in education policy in Illinois and, and I do a lot of anti-bias, anti-racist professional development within the state. And so I was like, if there's anything I can do? And they're like, yes, absolutely. Like, you know, at that point, I had a great relationship with them. Um, so it, it really, to me, it really became how can we get disability to fit into this, this, this narrative and this idea of 
of you know anti-bias work and how can this fit into the work that we're doing because I think there has been such a focus in in some schools not all but in some schools um, you know po- post you know May 2020 or some schools were doing it before not to say that every school just jumped on a bandwagon I, there are schools who have been working on it before but I think disability is what's left out of the conversation I think um, for somebody who's biracial and, and that's, that's a part of it but I think disability is left out I would have loved school so much more if I had a teacher like you growing up and I am someone who like did love school. Like, that's just amazing. Um, and piggybacking off that, uh, so how um, how do we or teachers implement lessons on disability in classrooms? Like, what are sort of best practices and what should be avoided? Yeah, I think this is, this is a conversation I have a lot because, and I think that for a lot of people who have this, you know, willingness to do this work and they're like, okay, like I read this great book or I was in a book club or I attended this professional development. And, you know, the, you know, a lot of teachers do work over the summers, like over the summer teachers will do work. And then they're like, all right, like my kids roll through August 23rd, August 25th, we're, we're talking about it. And I'm like, that's where you might get to the point of doing more harm than good. Um, I honestly don't even engage in these conversations with my students for the first few weeks because step one is community building. Because I mean, I found too that disability is a conversation that oftentimes as a fourth grade teacher, my students haven't really talked about, or maybe they've, they've been made aware of it. Maybe there's a student who's in the grade level who has a, a visible disability, but they're not aware of invisible disabilities. You know, maybe they don't have family members who have disabilities and they just, they don't understand kind of how this fits into identity. They like have a general awareness, but some of them are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, give me all of the information because I just, I want to know what you mean. And so step one, before I even get to that, because it's, it's a new conversation, is it's the community building piece. Because I think that when I was in fourth grade, I wouldn't want to talk about something I was unfamiliar with or, or didn't know um, or that would change my kind of viewpoint on the world um, with a bunch of strangers. So a lot of it that I do in the beginning is we just get to know each other um, and we just, you know, we build relationships and build trust. Um, and I make sure that my students can understand that there's a level of consistency they're going to get when they come in my classroom every day. They know what to expect. It, it may be like a, a hilarious, silly version of myself that's different every day, but I think I want them to know that like they can rely on me. They can rely on their classmates and peers, like safe space and brave space. So like we feel safe with each other, but it's brave in the sense that we're willing to talk about things and we establish, you know, routines and just how to communicate and how to listen to each other respectfully and how to ask questions instead of judging or, you know, I think that's like the big part of it is the communication piece of understanding how to have a conversation. And then we kind of get into like, let's define it. I think defining terms is big too. Like, like what does disability mean? What does disabled mean? Like what are visible versus invisible disabilities? What are disabilities that you may have heard of that you haven't? Um, And so I think for them, it's building the knowledge base because they're nine and 10. Um, so I think a lot of it for us is just building that knowledge base. And then from there, I really tied into conversations that I've already started to have with my class about other aspects of oppression and discrimination. Like we talk a lot about stereotypes and prejudice and discrimination and how that looked historically. But then we also, you know, utilize a great resource called Newzella, which takes news articles, but it writes them for kids at their grade level. And so we just kind of utilize that to read about like what's going on in the world. And so we start to tie what we see with disability to what we've already talked about, about like, they're like, oh, this is a stereotype too, because just as someone thought that girl couldn't play football, they also think this boy who's in a wheelchair can't play any sports, but that's not true. So it's that, that synchrony between the work that we're doing. And so it's, it's, it's super multifarious, um, but I, I hopefully that could like elucidate a bit of kind of what it looks like in my class. I think that the way that you gave the overview I could almost forget for a second that you were talking about nine and 10 year olds, right? I think that we're kind of at the point where we still need to be doing some of this regardless of age, regardless of location, regardless of setting. Um, I feel like we're still really at that point with disability where we do first need to build trust to have these complicated and complex and nuanced conversations about something that so many people consider an identity, but to other people, it's this taboo thing that you don't talk about. You're not supposed to talk about it. It's bad. It's negative. It's scary. We're not supposed to 
even acknowledge that it exists. And so I actually was thinking about it from the perspective of how much people would benefit from having opportunities to have conversations like this in the workplace and not just in educational settings. Um, you know, I really feel like we're missing the opportunity to do that trust building and not just have disability be this once a year awareness day or awareness week or whatever the case may be. Yeah, that's, and I think that's so much of what I think about too, is like, how does this, how does this translate beyond like this, like the elementary grades, you know, how does this work continue? Um, that, I mean, the NOR project has this amazing, um, like curriculum it's called the Stempathy Club and it's for students who have like, you know, as they have, you know, especially for mine, it was like once they had moved past like our, our kind of the storyteller project, which is the one that I work on is the one that has like the very large curriculum and the Stempathy Club is the one that is like students who are a little bit older and have, are looking at how they can, you know, create inclusive spaces in their school and in, you know, their school or community or environment. And so I had students for two years in the Stempathy Club and now they've gone off to seventh grade and they're going off to junior high. And I know a lot of them are still really invested in this work, but I wonder like, what does the work look like as they continue to get older? Um, like one of them mentioned that she wants to be a special education teacher. I'm like, that's awesome because I didn't even know what that was at that age. But I wonder like, as these kids who have gone through like these conversations, like how does that translate into like the future? Because right now, yeah, that doesn't really happen like in the workplace or it happens once and it's like a, it's like an opening day thing. It's one and done, you know, and then the fans don't come back out. So I've, I've thought about that a lot too, of like, how can we make this like a longitudinal piece of, of people? Like how can my students when they translate into working age be, you know, the real conduits for change in their working environment and be the stewards for change who are like wanting to, to bring this into, you know, their workplace or who will be eventually in positions of power, who are the ones who are, who are making this happen. Um, so I've thought about that a lot and it keeps me up at night occasionally, maybe like once every year, <laughs> but like I, I've thought about it, not all the time. I usually sleep really well. I'm usually really tired, but like I thought about it. Um, so I, I can agree with that for sure. You tired? Can't imagine. No. With all the energy? <laughs> no. Can't imagine. <laughs> you said something that raised a question for us though. Yeah, I was, we were just curious. Can you elaborate a little bit on uh, Stempathy Club? Yeah, it's, it's honestly, it's another one of those things that <laughs> I actually didn't want to do it because I have like no time on my plate. And so after my first year of uh, doing the Nora project with uh, my fourth grade class, who are now going to be seventh graders, um, I remember um, telling um, someone at the Nora project, Katie, I was like, I, I don't think I can do Stempathy. Like, I don't have time to like continue to work with the students that are leaving me because I'm getting a new batch that are coming in. I'm actually changing grade levels. I'm like, I don't have time for this. And at the end of the year, my class was like, so what happens now? Like, is it over? Like we leave you, but like, is the Nora project over for us? Like forever? And I was like, no, it can't be. We have to keep going. And so I, I, I took it on because the Step of the Club is it's this amazing, um, so as it makes the Nora project has like a suite of, of curricula. And so they have like the primer pack, which is for younger students to just kind of begin the conversation. And then the storyteller project is, you know, again, another year long thing, but it's what my students currently do where I think we really get into some amazing things like the history of the disability rights movement and the notion of ableism. Like we really get into some meaty stuff. Uh, but the Stempathy Club is more of like the, you know, my students have the background, they have the knowledge, you know, they, they have the terms, they, they know how to do it. They've had these meaningful discussions, but now how can you do something actionable? And so it's like, how can you look at your school or your community and how can you see where there is a lack of accessible spaces or inclusivity? Um, and then how can you make a change? Like, you know, put together a pitch and go talk to your principal or go talk to admin or, you know, talk to other teachers and how can you inform the student population that you have about what's going on is, you know, is your gym not accessible? Is your lunchroom not accessible? You know, our classrooms not accessible. Um, and COVID unfortunately really impacted a lot of the work that I was going to do with, with the students I had for two years because they were kind of <laughs> right as they were ramping up. We spent the past, you know, year plus being a lot, you know, doing all of it virtually. Um, but I think it's really great that it, it kind of allows the students to take it from the theoretical to the practical, um, where they really get to look at the space around them and say, like, 
you know, what could be done to make this accessible? Because not every space is accessible in terms of the social setting or just the physical setting and what needs to change about that. We're just over here marveling behind the scenes because we're very into this. <laughs> I, I, I can't imagine young children like pitching their principle about inaccessibility. Like that to me is mind blowing. I mean, like, I believe you, but that's like unbelievable. It's just, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Especially because I think when I was that age, I was not cognizant of those issues. Yeah. Despite exactly. the fact that, like, I am disabled, I don't think that I was quite so aware that I could just go up to someone and be like, I want to talk to you about how we're going to change this situation. Um, <laughs> exactly. It's... I mean, I don't know. Can I actually say that with Sesame Street? I don't think, I don't know if I can say that. Um, because at 10 years old, like, I was basically being like, actually, I think you should change things. But I mean, talking I mean, to Elmo is different than talking to your principal, though. Right. Principals are scary. I mean, they're not really. No, a little bit. Principals are kind of scary. Um, I hope none of my old principals are listening to this. They're definitely not. But I have a question. Um, in all of this, how do you avoid pitfalls and any sense of tokenization? Because I find that when we talk about disability, it's pretty easy, especially when you're young and you're trying to use association with what's around you to say, oh yeah, like Billy has this disability and Tommy has this disability. And suddenly it goes from being a conversation about the fact that disability is an identity and disability is something that is part of the human experience to calling out particular people because that's what we see and know around us. And I think that happened to me a lot when I was younger, where I went from being uh, someone who was part of the group to someone who became the token disabled kid and who was almost used as part of the lesson rather than being included in the lesson as another student. And so I'm wondering how we navigate that particular pitfall. And I know that's not necessarily an easy question, but I think because you have the insight of having done this in year-long stretches, I'm particularly interested in what that looks like. Yeah, I learned this lesson early on uh, teaching, but not about disability, but about race, um, that when I would have conversations about you know, multiple forms of discrimination and oppression, um, you know, regarding, you know, I think it was a conversation regarding like the civil rights movement or something. Um, and I, and I teach in a school district that, well, my school in particular is like 80 plus percent white. And so I typically only have a few students of color every year. And there was a point when I was teaching a lesson and a student brought up like, oh, so like people who were black, like insert student here, couldn't do this. And I was like, Oh, and so we immediately, as I'd mentioned, we have, you know, these, we've, you know, built this trust and set up these, you know, this, these community agreements and how we have a conversation. I was like, I was like, I'm going to own up. I think I missed something. I was like, whenever we're talking about anything, I was like, whatever it is, let's not ever use each other as an example. So like, we can talk about things that you've seen in spaces or like your understanding or something you've read in a book or seen in a movie or whatever, but let's not ever use each other unless that person volunteers that information up. Like if someone wants to add to the conversation that like, oh, you know, like this really strikes me because as a student of color or a black student, like I think about what my family members had to go through. Yes, let's absolutely honor that identity and honor that experience. But if that kid doesn't want to bring it up, we're not bringing it up. And so that's something I learned a few years ago. And so I feel like I've tried to include that in my framing of it when we're having these conversations really early on is like, one of the things that in the NOR project is this amazing lesson on on identity. And it really talks about like the, the notion of intersectional identity where the students get to talk about all things that make up who they are. And when we have these conversations, we talk about that. It's really from like an assets based perspective, as opposed to like the deficit model of like, everyone is bringing something unique to the table, to the table because we all have these different identities. Like, yes, there is overlap between our identities, especially with race or gender, for example. There seems to be a large overlap. 
But there's also a lot of places where identity doesn't overlap with them. It could be religion or it could be siblings or it could be someone's adopted or you know, someone might have you know, two parents of the same gender. And so there's a lot of places where we don't overlap. And so I feel like a lot of it is just like understanding that we're all bringing something unique to the table, but not necessarily, again, not calling that out unless a person offers that up. So I've had students throughout the NAR project who have brought up like their learning disabilities and they're like, oh, we've talked about like things that make people unique or how sometimes we learn differently than like we all learn differently than each other. And they're like, well, one way that I learn differently than other people in this class is that I, you know, when I'm reading, I have to process information this way or that way. And then that's a time we like honor, like, oh, thank you so much for sharing that. And someone else is like, well, yeah, like, I feel like I'm really good at math, but like, you know, I struggle with handwriting. And so it's like, I only do it if, if someone's willing to offer it up, but we try to avoid that. We, you know, actively eschew that notion of pointing out, you know, the students who get pulled out for a certain service or pointed out a student who, you know, who does, who is disabled. And so I think for us, it's, it's really establishing that early and just knowing like, if someone wants to talk about it, like, yes, we're going to let them talk about it and we're going to listen to them share their experience that we don't have. Um, but if someone doesn't want to bring it out because you don't want to be, you know, that token and especially, you know, being black and Mexican and having grown up in suburban Chicago, I found myself in that position a lot. And a lot of times I wouldn't want to talk about it. I'm like, yo, let's, let's not go into my, because you can tell I look different than everyone else. So let's not continue to kind of belabor this point. So I think that's the early setup. And they're really great about like not pointing kids out and saying like, oh, you know, this student does this or this student moves this way or this student, you know, has to have a special list to be able to see this way or hear this way. Um, so I think establishing it early, fourth graders are really great about that. Um, they, they're, they're amazing about that. Get them while they're young. <laughs> That's a really elegant solution to avoid a, a potentially big problem. I really, really like that. Um, and sort of piggybacking off of that, what do you think that we miss when we're not addressing how marginalized identities intersect? Yeah, I think it's it's one of those pieces of, I, I think a lot about, I kind of think about it in my own life and then I think about how that applies to other things. Like I think about the idea of, you know, one of my favorite and least favorite acronyms simultaneously, the TERF, the Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminists. Um, and I think about how like there are people who can, you know, be vociferous feminists, but only for people they believe are biologically women. Um, and so I'm like, we're missing, we're, we're missing some things here. Or, you know, feminists who only support the causes of white women. I'm like, we're, 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 we're missing some things here. Like we're like, we're, we're all struggling. And maybe there's a different struggle, but like our struggles aren't siloed and they're, they don't exist and, you know, this complete mutual exclusivity, you know, that like, even though the oppression that, that occurs and the marginalization that occurs happens for different reasons and the ideology may be different, but like at the end of the day, there is still a level of oppression that's happening. And it's like, we should really work together against these issues as opposed to just saying like, I'm only like looking at this cause or like, I'm only supporting this cause or I'm only working on this because so many of the experiences are, they are really interwoven. As I'd mentioned before, that my students were really easily on their own able to connect issues that they saw with stereotypes for, you know, girls versus boys for disabled children. And it's the same thing. They, they notice it all the time. We read, you know, books that, that talk about, you know, oppression that happens, you know, racially um, in our country or in the world. And they're able to see that. And they're like, well, yeah, like, but then also, it went, because especially when we started talking about the history of the disability rights movement. And they're like, oh, like, you know, disability justice is really amazing. But like, they're like, 1990 wasn't that long ago that this, this big, like, you know, actor law got passed. I'm like, yeah, the ADA. I'm like, that's when I was born, actually. They're like, okay, maybe it was that long ago. But I'm like, but they're like, it's not that long ago. And so I think for them, they're like, wow, the fact that they were fighting, you know, for the same things as, you know, they connected to the civil rights movement. And they're like, oh, well, we talked about this in this book that we read, or, you know, we talked about Ruby Bridges, or, you know, we talked about, you know, you know, amazing, you know, activists, you know, like Fannie Lou Hamer. And we're like, wait, wait, hold on. They're like, they're fighting for the same thing. But like years later, they're like, couldn't we have just like fought for it all at the same time? And I'm like, that makes a lot of sense. But I was like, I just, I mean, you know, I didn't go too deep. And I'm like, our country wasn't really necessarily ready for that, unfortunately. 
And, you know, we've had that conversation too. Um, but I, I think that's the thing that if my students can see that, I think that adults should be able to see that too. Of That if my students can point out like, you know, man, like a lot of people ha- have had and are still having a hard time in America, like, you know, maybe we shouldn't just fight for one cause, you know, and, and only support one cause or only fight for one cause when there's a lot of groups that, that need support or help. Um, and so I think that's a piece of it is like, I make sure that all my conversations don't just focus on, you know, one aspect, that they don't just focus on disability, they don't just focus on race or ethnicity, they don't just focus on gender issues or identity, but like having those conversations, they may be on different days, like we may read one book that's just about disability, but then like when our conversations happen, the deeper into the year, the more they're able to connect the things. And I'm like, ah, this is it. Like, ah, this is, this is exactly how I kind of think about it too. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's a big part of it is we can't just, you know, our liberation's tied together. So like we, we, we gotta, we, we gotta, we gotta fight in, you know, in, in multiple spaces there. And as you're focusing on getting kids to come to an understanding of historical context and also contextualizing it in what's currently going on in our day-to-day and our political atmosphere, how do you capitalize on what I imagine to be youthful idealism, like saying, oh, why didn't we just fight for all of this at the same time? And also ground it in the reality of the fact that we live in a very complex and nuanced world. I mean, I know this is a huge question here, but again, I'm thinking about it from the perspective of not just youthful idealism, but I suppose people who are working in social justice movements who are firm in their belief that we can move ahead to a better future, but at the same time, we exist in our current reality. I think I'm asking for myself. I was going to say asking for a friend, but like I'm asking for myself. That's what fair. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's, I think one of the things I do appreciate, which you, you brought up is I, I do appreciate about fourth graders that they have this, you know, just like amazing, like, you know, viewpoint that, you know, they just, they're, it's weird that like they're starting to see that the world is unfair, but they, they're just, they don't quite have like that jaded notion of like a teenager just yet. Um, so I feel like I try to like, I, I definitely, you know, lean into their youthful exuberance for sure, because I feel like when I work with a lot of adults, a lot of times it's feel like gloom and doom and they're like, ah, oh, well, you know, and like my parents and I get it. My parents, you know, were born in the sixties and they're like, it's never going to change. They're like, you know, things that, you know, we were seeing when I was a kid, you're seeing now it's never going to change. And I totally understand why my parents feel that way. I'm like, you've, you've seen this for you know, 60, well, I'll say 59 because I'm sure my mom will listen to this. And she'd be like, you're telling people I'm 60. She's 59, everyone. She's got time. She's not 60. Um, but, and I totally get why they say that. But I think, you know, I think as you age, you just, you see kind of how things play out. But I think for nine and 10 year olds, you know, they spent, you know, probably five to six years not even having these conversations be on their radar. So they only have like three years of being like, oh, I read a book about, you know, Martin Luther King. And I'm like, whoa, this is interesting. Like, I didn't know this was, this is really a thing. And so I feel like a lot of it is I try to use their enthusiasm, like in the way of like solutions based, because I feel like in conversations that I have with, with other adults, um, a lot of times it can just be very like theoretical, like, you know, especially with people who are well-read, you could talk about issues um, in our country for hours you know, you could talk about, you know, historically why there are issues in our country with oppression and marginalization and where we're at now, but it's like, that's good and fine. Like, but I think some people want solutions and that's kind of where I'm at. And that's kind of the work I try to do in my district is like, how can we do actionable things? And so I feel like for them, I kind of, you know, ask them like, what can we do that's actionable, you know? And so they would do things like, especially with the Nora project, like, they would design games that were inclusive for people of all abilities. So I would like, you know, they would talk through like, okay, like let's not just make this, you know, a game where in the middle of it, you have to like do this certain dance move because they're like, wait, not everybody is able-bodied and can move, you know, their legs in the way that I move my legs. So they're like, we'll have it. We'll have like it instead of it being like a dance move. It's like a, you can do something silly. Whatever you think is silly is how you'll do it. And so I feel like I try to push them to just be like, okay, like we've talked about this. Like, 
and you've started to realize that like not every game that you play is is inclusive to people of all abilities like how can you create something that's different um or like what would you do differently like and they'll bring up things to me like well, i was in this space and i saw it didn't have an elevator or like none of the signs had braille and i'm like okay like what would you do you know so a lot of it is just like trying to get them to like think about like the solutions and i feel like because they're so like you know, almost quixotic, which I love um, about them and, you know, and Pollyanna-ish, which I love, um, that it's like they they don't feel like defeated by anything yet. So I feel like when I ask them about solutions, they're not like, oh, I tried this and it didn't work. Or like, you know, someone else tried that five years ago and it didn't work. They're just like, yeah, I want to try this and I want to do it. Um, so I feel like that's a part of like the, I, I, t- I don't want to like, <laughs> you know, I, I tend to use their, you know, enthusiasm as, again, an asset but I think the other part is just like the reality of things that I feel like, especially post George Floyd, that like I don't have to explain anything to them. Like I think that the parents in my community are really great about having conversations with their kids. And all year they came to me about things. Like after the summer, they were coming up to me telling me, oh, I went to a protest this summer. Or like, you know, I read this book. Or like I had this conversation with my mom about this. So I feel like they now have just become so aware of what's going on and they were very tuned into the election and we're asking and i ended up teaching about the electoral college because they wanted to know um and then you know post january 6th they were they were the ones who came into me and were like i saw what happened on the news like what's going on like tell me more so i feel like they have seen how things have played out in this country so i feel like i don't have to like you know tell them like oh like (laughs) you know you're like you're in fourth grade and you think everything's positive but like you know, sometimes bad things happen. Like they know bad things happen. Like they, they know that the world isn't like, they've told me they're like, you know, I think they're like, I think first graders would, they're like, I think if they had this conversation, they wouldn't have it the same way that we're having it. Right. I'm like, oh, totally. Because I think that they know, like they know what's going on in the world, but I think that they're still at that age where they're just so excited about like, how can I be the change? You know, how can I do something? You know, how can I have a big sale to fundraise or something created like little flyers to pass out about climate change to put in other classrooms? And I'm like, I'll print it out for you. Like, let's do it. Like, you know, it's like those are the things where I'm like, I'm just going to lean into it that I'm just going to absolutely support them in their enthusiasm because I know at some point in life it will go away. So I'm just like, let's let's use this as an asset because you have enthusiasm that most people don't have. I feel like you're describing me when I was little, down to the bake sale and the flyers for climate change. I'm not even kidding. Like in fifth grade after uh, the attacks on September 11th, I was like, I don't know what to do with myself. Let's have a bake sale and raise some money for people. Um, And then, you know, when I was in high school, I was like, oh my God, climate change. We need to start an environmental club. And, you know, I just... (laughs) Kyle's laughing because like, this is very me, but yeah, like I, I wanted to be as solutions oriented as I could be within my still admittedly narrow scope of understanding. And also I need to acknowledge that I grew up in a predominantly white middle-class like bubble. And also where I live, it's, it's heavily, heavily conservative. And so even though I grew up in a house of Democrats, doesn't mean that I had that very strong grounding in social justice, but I was like, I see things happening and I need to do something. So that was my approach to it. But I'm interested in talking a little bit about the notion of allyship. And I think that can look different to kids and adults for sure. But I actually want to turn it around on you if I can, because I think that this whole conversation, you've been demonstrating how to be an ally without actually saying, I'm an ally, you know, like, give me a sticker. So, yeah. So, I mean, what is it for you that kind of drives you to be an ally in the way that you are? And how can you drive other people to be an ally without having to give them that gold star for doing it? If that makes sense. Yeah. You know, like we've been talking about this in um, other episodes. Like what was the episode on skepticism, Kyle? Yeah. We we, we did a whole episode on how um, we, Emily and I, but also 
some of the greater disability community as a whole is sort of skeptical inherently of well-to-do able-bodied folks. And I have to tell you, I did not feel that for one second since you've been here. And I think it's just because you demonstrate allyship in a way that we wish most people did. Appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. So I think we're giving you the gold star, but also like we want to talk about how to do it without needing the gold star. So it's a little bit of a complex question, but I feel like you're up for the challenge. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the the big thing, I mean, I think about this in two ways. And I think one of them is, is that for me, my lens is like, it's, it's a moving target that like it, to me, it's never a place that you arrive. You know, because like your actions can be something, but to me, like you're never actually there because the needs of people and communities and society are constantly changing. That like someone could have been really invested in anti-bias, anti-racist work in 2014, but that looked very different as of August 5th, 2017 in Charlottesville happened. And that looked very different on May 25th, 2020, post-murder of George Floyd. Like, so it's like there are constantly things that change and evolve that make you have to like, look at what am I doing? And how does it fit into like the, the needs of the community, which I don't belong to? Because you can be very well intentioned, but your intention does not always equal impact. And so I think that's always like something that I try to focus on is like, like where am I needed? Like, what can I do? Um, as opposed to just being like, I just want to like help everyone and just do whatever. And it's like, that's, that's not what's necessary. Is that like, I can't just like help everyone because like, I think I understand like what I'm good at and what I'm not. And so I feel like I try to just like lend the assets of like what I'm good at. And so like, I feel like for me, like my lane is like what I do with my students, but like it wouldn't be other things. Like I, I work in, you know, education policy, but I would be really bad at like looking at policy for special education in the state of Illinois because I'm not a special ed teacher. So even though I have all this, you know, history and background of working with, you know, disabled students and kids, that doesn't mean that I'd be good at that. So I'm not just going to be like, wait, yes, I'm this ally. And like, I work in policy and I work with the Nora Project. Like, here I am. I'm going to help write this legislation. Absolutely not. Like, I would ask someone who's a special ed teacher and be like, you work with these students every day. Like, this is your area. Like, I'm taking a back seat. Like, this is not, like, this is not me. Um, and I think the second thing for me too is um, Dr. Bettina Love, who's this amazing anti-bias, anti-racist educator, um, talks about the idea of an ally versus a co-conspirator. And she gives this amazing narrative that I'm not even going to do justice to um, about, you know, what that, what that essentially looks like. And she's like, you know, a co-conspirator is about putting something on the line. And she's like, you know, an ally is someone who's read all the books and they're at every meeting. But she's like, when it comes time for action, you're looking around and you're like, where are they? And she's like, they got an Uber and they took off. She's like, an ally is a person who's like well-informed and well-meaning but she's like a, a co-conspirator is someone who puts something on the line. Um, and she gave the example of Brie Newsom and James Tyson um, when the Confederate flag came down in South Carolina um, about four or five years ago and about how essentially James Tyson was a white man who helped save Brie Newsom's life because the police at the time were going to tase the flagpole to get her down. Um, and instead of, she said, James Tyson, if he was on the outside, uh, in the outside of the gate, he just would have been like, oh, Brie, like the police are here. But she's like, no. He was on the inside of the gate and he put his hand on the flagpole and the police aren't going to tase a flagpole with an able-bodied white man putting his hand on the flagpole. And so for me, I try to frame it in that way too of like, again, in my scope of like, what can I do that's meaningful that may be a little bit out of my comfort zone? Like, I don't know, maybe James Tyson didn't want to be inside the gate. Maybe he just wanted to be on the outside with a walkie-talkie and being like, oh, you know, the British are here and they're coming in 50 yards or what. Like, maybe that's what he wanted to do. But the most important thing for that to happen was for him to be inside the gate and put his hand on the flagpole. And so for me, it's like sometimes, some, like especially when I started with the Nora Project, it was uncomfortable to talk with my students about disability. I had never done it with kids and I've been teaching for four years at that point. But for me, it's like, okay, but I do feel like I've come into my own as a teacher. I feel like I know how to build classroom community. This is something I can do. So for me, I was like, I am putting something on the line because this could go terribly wrong. Like I could say the wrong thing. I could give them misinformation. A parent could email me. Like there's something that could go wrong here. But for me, I'm like, but this is something that I know that I can do if I work at it. And I'm probably going to screw it up a couple times and I'm sure I have. But like I feel so much more comfortable now, you know, this is going to be my fourth year at the Nora Project because I was willing to not just say no, like 
I don't know if I could teach my students about disability. That seems really tough. They're too young. They're in fourth grade. Ask an upper grades teacher. Ask a junior high teacher. But I was like, yeah, I want to do this. So I think for me, it's like taking on those challenges. Um, but again, that aren't just like, oh, I'll do anything for you. I'll do anything. Because like, I can't do anything. Like I have limitations to my abilities. And so it's like, you know, where is it that I can, I can make that change and try to do that, but, you know, not try to, I'm not going to go become a special education teacher because that's not what my skill set is. Like I would have to go, I would have to go back to school and do that. Like that's not me. Um, so I'm not just going to sit here and pretend that just because I work with an organization that now I can, you know, differentiate instruction well enough to do that. So I think that's probably where it fits in for me. It's putting something on the line, but knowing how I can make an effective change instead of just being the cheerleader who has the gold star and says, I like, I do everything. Like, no. I'm not usually speechless, but I'm just like, what? <laughs> I mean, I, I have to be very honest um, to peel back the curtain a little bit. Kyle and I have a Google Doc with our questions and we're just typing back and forth about how great we think you are. And not because of like, <laughs> not because of the allyship gold star, like not at all, but just because I feel like we have behind the scenes been looking for someone who would articulate a lot of this because we have a lot of people who are disabled and who listen to our podcast because they're seeking out solidarity and they're seeking out how they can be better allies, right? But we also have a lot of non-disabled people who are listening to the podcast because they are genuinely wondering how they can do better. How can I be an ally? How can I be a co-conspirator? How can I be an accomplice? And I think that we can only answer those questions insofar as we are disabled people. So we can tell you what we would hope for, but we can't really tell you how to do it. Everybody has to figure that out for themselves and what that looks like. And so the fact that you've been sharing what that looks like for you, and I think giving really strong and concrete advice to people who are like, I want to do something, I want to help, but okay, let's back up. Let's think about how to do it very mindfully and thoughtfully is an incredibly valuable resource. So I'm just going to make every educator, teacher, HR person, human being that I know listen to this, (laughs) 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 to be, to be quite honest. Um, But I know that we have managed to make this a rather lengthy conversation and I think you've already shared so much of yourself and we're very grateful. But are there other resources that you would suggest people check out if they don't want to stop here, which I hope they don't, if they see this as a starting point or a point on whatever journey they're on, where next? Where do you go? Yeah. And see, this is honestly what's what I, I feel like I'm always that person who in every space, I'm like, you should really go to the Nora project. Like I, I'm always, like I hate being that person. I'm always like, I'm like, go to the, I'm like, I'm like, am I just like plugging them all the time? But I feel like I'm totally that person who's like, go look at their website because like I say that because like as an adult, you could be like, oh, like, so it doesn't just have to be like building ramps. Like there's like, I, I feel like for me, that's the thing is that it's just, like, yeah. it's, it's so, it's so incredibly multifarious. I feel like for, for folks like me, um, and I, I think for people who like, you know, just started, you know, who actually started doing this work, you know, a few years ago, we really didn't know. Like growing up, I was just like, I don't know. I, I guess it's like, to me, it was just like, it's only physical disabilities and like, it's only, it's only visible disability. Like I had no idea until I started reading Um, so I think like, that's always the first place I say to go. Um, but honestly, I think the biggest thing for me when I was really curious about something, because I've had to do this with my students is I really thought about what is it that I want to know in particular, because I think like, and I I do amazing anti-bias, anti-racist work with other educators. And I say amazing, not because I'm too to my own home, but because the people I work with are amazing. Like these other educators are amazing. And the work that we've done is we like put together a toolkit and it was about resources for anti-bias, anti-racist work. But we found we did it because people didn't know where to look because people are just like Googling things and they're like, I don't know where to look. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I think the biggest thing that I found, especially with this with my students too, is I'm like, what is it that you want to know about in particular? I'm like, because if you just Google the word disability or disabled, you're going to get so much. 
and you're not going to know what it is. And so with my students, I'm like, well, what do you want to know about in particular? And they're like, well, I want to know about like visual impairments. I'm like, that's what you need to look up. I was like, they're like, if, like, if you want to know about Down syndrome, like that's in particular what you need to look up as opposed to just being like disability ally or like, <laughs> like well, I feel like, like people are trying to get like random things and now they'll be like, wait, disability co-conspirator. That's what I need to type in now. But it's like, I actually think it's like whatever, because again, like if you want to make the change in the way that like you want to make the change, think about like, what is it that you want to do? Like, do you want to like work with an organization that's in your community or neighborhood? Like then you need to look up like what organizations exist within your neighborhood or community. Or, you know, if there is books you want to read, like look up like book lists that are informative or something like that for, you know, what you're trying to find. So I feel like for me, I, I tend to say like focus the, the the looking as opposed to like just a broader, like, you know, one-stop shop, I think. Um, and look in multiple places because you need to make sure the information you're getting is what you really want. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's solid advice. And it's funny because when you said look up disability co-conspirator, I just Googled it super quickly just because off the top of my head, I was wondering what that would bring you to. And, you know, also kind of recognizing the differentiation between a lot of concepts within the disability community. So disability rights and disability justice. And if you want to learn about disability rights, you Google disability rights. If you want to learn about disability justice, you Google disability justice. And recognizing that the community itself is not monolithic and that if you just look up disability you're not going to be focusing on learning about a community you're going to be getting this very very broad and all-encompassing overview and that doesn't boil down to the fact that we're all human beings who have very different experiences Mm -hmm. dependent upon the other identities that intersect with disability dependent upon where we grew up dependent upon um whether we communicate verbally or not dependent upon our gender identity dependent upon so many things and that's kind of the point that i'm always hoping to get across to people like i think people look at me and they're like oh yeah like disability white girl in a wheelchair totally i get it um And I have to remind people so often, like I am perhaps your picture of disability. I perhaps match the little parking placard, if you will, but I am not the face of disability. I am one human being who does not know what it is like to be someone who is black or indigenous or a person of color who's disabled, who comes from a different economic background, who comes from a different geographic location. Um, And I know I'm a little bit on my soapbox here, but I just think that when people think of disability, their scope is so incredibly narrow. So I appreciate how much you have helped us to remember how easy it can actually be in some senses to broaden that scope simply by recognizing that you really need to focus in on what you're trying to learn as opposed to being like, oh yeah, disability, one word, totally, I get it. Right, yeah. (laughs) So uh, I think we have officially reached a natural ending point. I could ask you a million more questions. I'm not going to lie to you, but I feel like we should wrap up. What do you think, Kyle? Yeah, I think now is about a good time. (laughs) All right. So at the end of every episode, we have a little something we like to do. And this time I'm going to let Kyle do it. Yeah, we do this thing called Final Takeaways, where you basically summarize one lesson you want the listeners to take away in uh, in a sentence. And I don't think I have one. I don't think I could say anything that's even like one-tenth as good as everything you just said. Um, <laughs> this is, I think, the first time I've ever been like completely at a loss for words on this show. I mean, I mean that in the most complimentary way possible. I mean, like, this was incredible. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. So now it's your turn. You have to give us one sentence. Ready, go. No, I'm just kidding. No pressure. However many sentences you need. <laughs> um, I think I think my my takeaway, if I can try to make this pithy and not very, you know, full of verbosity and loquacity as I always do, um, is 
I would say like the goal to becoming an ally and eventual co-conspirator is, you know, figuring out how you can best make an impact as opposed to just like trying to be the person who just like wants to do everything and wants to try to save the world because like we don't need one person to save the world. Like the only way the world's going to be saved is, is everyone fills these like little roles. You know, everyone does like the part that they're supposed to do. And some people's roles are bigger than others. Um, but I think that's what it is for me. It's just like coming to that understanding of like knowing what's in your locus of control, maybe pushing past that a bit to become uncomfortable, but like not trying to be like, I'm not going to change the entire, like I live in Chicago. I'm not changing everything in Chicago. That's not happening. Like I can make it, I can make a change, but I'm not literally going to change the entire city. Um, we've had a lot of mayors that I'm pretty sure have been unsuccessful in that. So that's what it is for me. One mind at a time. That's my general approach to life. And so I think I'm just going to make that my final takeaway because I can't say anything better than that. Um, on that note, Alex, is there anywhere across the interwebs that we can find you? Or are you are you well hidden? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, apparently I'm not well hidden because you Googled the right things. But uh <laughs> No, I was going to say in particular, no, I don't have like a website myself um, that I, my only plug that I ever have is the, uh, the website that I, uh, I have that, that focuses on anti-bias, anti-racist work is the only one that I ever like push for people to go to because at least I've made that and it's teach to change now.org. And so I feel like that is at least a place of resources. We're talking about intersectionality that can find other resources that fit into this conversation of like, the disability community versus other notions of anti-bias and anti-racism. So that's all I got. That's perfect because we were going to ask you for some research links to put in the show notes and some of your work to put in the show notes. So please everybody go check out that website. I know I'm literally going to do that as soon as we're done talking. So thank you so much. Um, This has been incredible. And yeah. I really hope that, you know, if you stuck with us for this entire hour, um, which is one of the longest episodes I think we've ever done, to be quite honest with you, uh, that you have taken away as much as I know we have. Um, Alex, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thank so you much. so much. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. And on that note, woo, I am Emily. I'm Kyle. And you have just listened to another episode of The Accessible Stall. And might we say you look great today. Fabulous. Good night.